So our second lesson is from Luke chapter 16. It's a parable familiar to many of us who grew up in the church. And I'm going to say this is the gospel of Jesus and you're expected to say thanks be to God. And after I read this parable, good luck with that. I think it'll be okay though. There's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, Lazarus in light manner evil things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that no one who might want to pass from here to you can do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I've got five brothers that he may warn them, so they may not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. This is the gospel of Christ. In faith, let's say, thanks be to God. Um, Before we get into this reflection this morning about this parable, let me clear the ground a little bit. Um, First of all, this is a parable. A parable, it has been said, is a fictitious saying picturing truth. Uh, More memorably put is the definition that Uh, Klein Snodgrass is uh, a big fan of. He wrote a really great masterwork, life's work on the parables called Stories with Intent. And he borrows this this definition of a parable. It's actually language that a poet used to describe the the work of her, uh, describe her work as as a poet when she's thinking about what poetry achieves. In any event, Klein uh, repurposed this uh, for parables, and, and, and the definition goes like this. Parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Imaginary gardens with real toads in them. In other words, they're fictitious, but they say what's true. They say what's true about people, and they say what's true about God. Also, I want to just underline the fact, because for many of us, we may have grown up with this view of the parable. It's not a description of heaven and hell. 
More about that later as we unpack it a bit. And while God's judgment is in view, for sure, it's not a treatment of the eternal destiny of human beings. But it is a parable about God's judgment. And the wealthy man, who is a stand-in for others like him, is judged. Now, to be faithful to this story, I am going to make that point strongly. But please understand, I consider myself to be a rich person in comparison to so much of the world's population and so many in Chicago. How do I know I'm a rich person? Because I can readily order coffee drinks that are hard to pronounce. And let me just say, that qualifies me as a rich person for this parable. So if there's a finger pointing, it's pointing first and foremost right back at me. So please hear these remarks in that way. I also want us to understand that we need to be able to think about God's judgment as an aspect, a crucial aspect of the good news of God's coming kingdom. It's an aspect of the good news. We need to separate God's judgment from whatever is in our mind about damnation because we are meant to benefit from God's judgment. We have a really especially hard time with this because there are no models in our world of judgment working out good for people. There are only models in our world of judgment canceling people, you know? I'm judging you because it may be right about this, but reconciliation is never the goal of judgment in our society. Banishment is the goal of judgment in our society. For God, judgment always has as his end goal the hope of reconciliation. God's judgment is a part of salvation. Hopefully we will see the truth of this as we ponder this parable together. In a way, Luke's been building up to this parable from the very beginning of his gospel. The theme of great reversal is there right from the start in Mary's Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely now all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered proud the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And then we encounter in Luke chapter 4, Jesus' inaugural sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And then again, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And then, there's a passage coming later in Luke that actually Pat Hecker preached on. Uh, And if you haven't heard that, you should listen to it. I'll embarrass Pat because he's here. 
It was really, really helpful to me to hear that sermon. Uh, that's a sermon about the, the wealthy guy that invites all the other wealthy people to have dinner, and then they all sort of jockey for position about who should seat in which seat of honor. And Jesus says, where are the poor people? Right there at the dinner. So in a, in a way, no surprise that we have the parable of Lazarus now. It's been being built up to in Luke all along. Now, this story that Jesus tells, this parable, it's a lot like other stories that would have been familiar to his hearers. In the ancient Near East, there were more than a few stories of great reversal like this in other cultures, even going back to ancient Egypt. And in Jewish tradition, there were rabbinic stories like this. Jesus appropriates the familiar aspects of these stories but then particularizes with content that fits his concerns in this parable. In several of these stories that I'm talking about, lest you think I just sit around and read ancient Egyptian stories, that or I don't, but I do read people who do read them, and I do trust them because I think they're really good scholars. But in any event... Um, In these stories, several of them, uh, which people, there's a good chance that many, or at least some in his crowd have been familiar with these stories. The Lazarus type in the story would be sent back as a warning to others. Would go back, like make an appearance. It's kind of Hamlet, right? The ghost comes back, woof, you know, scares people, right? Um, That would happen in some of these stories. But in Jesus' telling of this story, he's emphatically not going to do that. Lazarus is not going back. Why? Because spectacle is not what is needed to believe that Jesus' kingdom is what he says it is. The fulfillment of the Old Testament, that those who oppose his kingdom say that they believe is here in their midst, and because of their hardness of heart, they will not accept it. What Jesus is saying in this parable is that those who need to repent, they already know. Their problem is not that they need to see someone come back from the dead to get the point. And remember, this is, this is being written after Jesus has been raised from the dead, So the point is, if someone were to come back from the dead, their hearts would still be hard. The parable is told against those who refuse to see that Jesus' kingdom puts the teaching of the Old Testament with regard to the poor in sharp focus. It's a long sentence. Let me say it again. The parable is told against those who refuse to see that Jesus' kingdom puts the teaching of the Old Testament, which they say they believe, with regard to the poor, in sharp focus. His kingdom is good news for the poor before it is good news for anyone else. Why? Because, as the Belhar Confession puts it, and if I'd have been smart enough, I'd have put this part of the Belhar Confession in our liturgy today, but you'll recognize it. 
We believe that God, in a world of injustice and enmity, is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor, and the wronged. Why is God in a special way the God of the poor? Because if God were not on their side, no one would be. No one would be. So this parable is told as a judgment against those who refuse the coming of Jesus' kingdom, in large part because all the wrong people, sinners, the poor, so forth, are playing starring roles in it. And the religious leadership of the day, they are not even getting cameos, okay? But how should this parable land with us? Let me pause and take a deep breath. Remember what I said at the very beginning. God's judgment is an aspect of God's love. God's judgment is always aimed to help people, not hurt people. So if some of this language makes you feel like, oh, maybe I need to take stock of some things, that's not damnation. That's not God yelling at you. That's gentle Jesus saying, if you do need to take stock of things, here, let's do it together. Let's do it together. What God wants, now, now to the, my feeble efforts of, of trying to help us understand how this parable might land with us. What God wants is for all human beings to flourish. The poor, when they are not cared for, when they are not lifted up, they are not flourishing. The rich, when they ignore the needs of the poor, are doing deep harm to their souls. So they are not flourishing either. In everyday life, it is easy to see that the poor are not flourishing. But it's a lot harder to see that the rich are not. This parable opens our eyes to see both of these realities clearly. One key aspect of the vocation of the church is to care for the poor and to keep rich people from hurting their souls. And the success of that will ensure the enablement that the care that the poor deserve in God's eyes, the way God sees the world. If the rich are not hurting themselves by ignoring the poor, the poor will be lifted up. Enablement of the care of the poor. I was at Breakthrough Urban Ministries this week with Karen Taney, one of our deacons, Calvin Handoko, our new youth and family, uh, youth and families minister, and uh, the whole reason for being over there was to uh, make sure that with Caleb leaving, Caleb was our main liaison with Breakthrough while Caleb was here. We want to make sure that, that our relationship with Breakthrough you know, continues to, to flourish um, for their benefit and ours. Uh, so we're you know, hanging out over there. Uh, Calvin's getting to know people. Kara's getting to know people better. And I had that same thought that I have every time I'm at Breakthrough Urban Ministries. You know, they organize their mission to help the poor. They're the same thought in my mind that I always do, which is, 
Why are there not hundreds and hundreds of more breakthroughs? <laughs> Why is not every micro neighborhood in Chicago have something like breakthrough? Uh, because they're making an impact in their little corner of East Garfield Park. Um, the pastor of a church in Chicago, you know, we, we worry about are we doing enough for breakthrough? But, you know, I've been in Chicago doing ministry now for 20 years, and I just can't understand there are so many churches in Chicago that can order the leadership of, uh, can order fancy coffee drinks. <laughs> They're rich, right? Why don't we do more? Why don't we do more? Now, take a deep breath. That's not condemnation. That's just asking you, can we do more? Can we do more? Is the parable speaking to us in that way? The rich man in the parable is under the judgment of God from the very first day he stepped over Lazarus. Ate a sumptuous meal and then left the napkin. Those scraps of food, they're napkins, by the way. You don't go down to Whole Foods and buy napkins. You just have the baker bake more bread and you use bread for napkins. And that's what was being thrown to Lazarus was the scraps of bread that they used to Napkins and Lazarus is left to fight with the dogs over these pieces of bread. I don't think any one of you would do that. I look around this room and I'm in almost every single one of you. Almost. Personally. I don't think any of you would do that. But parables are a form of indirect communication. Meaning that they sneak up on us. And they jolt us into asking questions like this. Have I allowed worldly patterns of thinking about the poor to influence my thinking regarding my responsibility to the poor? Do I imagine that pulling the right lever in the ballot box takes care of my responsibility for the poor, largely? Do I imagine that the poor just need to get a job without taking into consideration how challenging that is for so many? Or am I just complacent, assuming that someone else will take care of the poor? Back to our uh, definition of parables. They are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Keeping this in mind, I suggest that when we hear this parable, we ask ourselves, are we maybe even a teeny see little bit like the rich man. Remember what I said? I know you all. You're not really like that rich man. But are we even sometimes a teeny eeny bit like him? If so, can we recognize that God's judgment against us is so that we might repent and flourish more fully as the Christ-like people God is making us into, the flourishing of the rich when we are repentant in this way ensures the flourishing of the poor and in turn welcomes and celebrates the coming of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks be to God for the gospel. We got there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.